pray with me the prayer that Jesus taught us all to pray, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's be seated. That last song, I was sitting here thinking about this. I don't know if the, the old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, if many of you know the context in which that song was written. The author of that song had just gone through a, um, a really difficult tragedy in which his wife and his, I believe, two daughters were killed in a fire in a boating accident. And it was out of that experience in which he pens those words, pens those words in the midst of suffering and turmoil, that there is something that I can still praise God about because he's still God in the midst of it all. Sometimes knowing the context in which things are written or sort of kind of the heart in which it was sort of penned gives us a new sort of insight into the meaning of what that, that, that's all about. In many ways, I'm super grateful that Garrett chose that song because our, our sort of text this morning that we're going to be reflecting on together, sort of out of that same spirit, out of a difficult circumstances and time in which this prayer is offered to us in the book of Psalms. And so I want you to just join me in listening to these words. I think they'll be up on the screen um, as we ground this morning's message in Psalm 142. The whole chapter, like last week, but it's only six verses, seven verses, so you'll be okay. But notice, one of the interesting things about the Psalms is at the top there, it gives you a sort of context in which this prayer was written. Um, and it's the way that the scriptures sort of say, like, when you're in a circumstance like this, this is the way that you ought to pray, right? And so in this particular circumstance, there's a mascal of David when he was in a cave, a prayer. And it's this moment where, where David is being pursued by Saul who wants to kill him and he has no friends, no loyalties. He's just in this really awful, awful place in his life. But in the midst of that context, David gives us these words. He prays to the Lord, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. This is the word of God for the people of God. This morning, God, give us the ears to hear what it is that you want us to understand about this way of praying. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen. It's the one question that you will receive 
And you will inevitably be asked every time that you come to a worship service, and it may take different forms, but the question will be asked nonetheless, whether by a greeter, whether by somebody in your pew, whether over a cup of coffee, but the question is this, how are you? How are you? How is it going? What's going on? How was your week? There's lots of forms, but it's all essentially the same question, how are you? And it's not just a question that we ask in church. Your barista, the server at lunch that, you will, <laughs> that will be serving you after the service, your spouse, your friends, your kids, they will all ask you the same question on a pretty regular basis. How are you? How is it going? And if you're anything like me, the default answer that you've learned is one that we generally all respond with without even thinking about it. And the response that I give 99.99999% of the time is the same. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. But if you're in church, it's like, it's not just I'm good. It's like, I'm good, brother, right? I'm good. Praise God, sister, right? How are you? We got to like sort of spiritualize it. But this sort of like automated response sort of forces us, I think, to wrestle with this question. But what, what if you're not good? What, what if things are not going well? What if things are terrible? What if the past few months have been difficult and painful? What if you feel empty? What if you feel exhausted? What if the words, it's cancer, are ringing through your head as they were set across from the table from you this week? What if she died was the last update you received about a loved one who is battling sickness? What if we're going to have to let you go? has put your family's financial stability in jeopardy. What if all of these things? And it's in that moment that the then how are you question isn't just a greeting that we exchange with one another. It's a sort of on-ramp to a conversation about life's struggle and life's pain. How are we supposed to begin, though, processing life's challenges and difficulties? And how can we do that in the church, right? We have to be good all of the time. The pastor has to be good all of the time too, right? Like everything's good in my life. I'm the pastor. It's fantastic. You see, we live in a culture that highly prizes celebration and success and achievement, triumph and victory, and not just on a sort of societal level, but for individuals. This is why we're always good. This is why we share the posts that we do on social media because things are always good. I have it all together even the thought of like sharing on social media what life is actually like, it, like, it makes me like just cringe, right? Because I don't really want to know what life is really I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. And we as a church, we've been taught and shaped by a culture of success, strength, and having it all together as ultimate values that we're supposed to have as people. And this is no more evident than in the way that we worship you see, our worship in the church in America has been disproportionately shaped by this sort of victorious, celebratory, we have it all together kind of music and singing and preaching. And this is true nearly of all traditions of Christian worship in America. To be sure, let me just say this, I think Christian worship should be celebratory, right? Like we celebrate what it is that God has accomplished in Jesus. This is why our music is so oftentimes triumphant because we have victory in the Lamb of God. No doubt about it. This is a truth about our worship, but worship that is solely celebratory and victorious and triumphant 
is an incomplete kind of worship, at least in the biblical sense. You see, the Psalms are a book that have long shaped sort of worship and prayer of God's people, both individually and corporately. For those who are unfamiliar, the book of Psalms is about 150 chapters. It's a lot of chapters, but there are 150 prayers, songs, and poems that have been used to sort of teach God's people the language of worship, to teach God's people the language of prayer. And scholars who study these types of things, they they say that there are about 60 of the 150 psalms that would be classified as what we call laments. You see, the psalms of lament are prayers written and offered in the midst of a distressing situation when you want God to do something, when there's something terribly gone awry in the world and in your life, and you just want God to do something. 60, 40% of the Psalms are written out of that sort of life context and that life experience in the midst of pain, in the midst of loss, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of grief, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of deep depression and sadness. Imagine that. Almost half of the Psalms are written in that context. But this is not representative in Christian worship in America in 2019. Several years ago, there's an Old Testament scholar named Denise Hopkins who did a study on the use of lament and the Psalms of the lament or sort of scriptures that are considered laments within sort of high liturgical churches. If you think like Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, Episcopalians, these types of churches who have formal worship, the way that their worship is generally set up for those who are unaware is there's a book, Book of Common Prayer, they might have different names, that sort of assign the scripture that's supposed to be preached, they assign the scriptures that are supposed to be read, including the Psalms every Sunday, and they assign the hymns that you're supposed to sing every Sunday. And in her studying of these sort of high liturgical forms of worship, what she discovered and found was across the board in all traditions, when a congregation or a parish skips a psalm, skips a hymn, it is almost universally a sort of lament psalm or a passage about lament and grief and sadness and brokenness. There's this different study, though, done by Glenn Pemberton. He examined not just higher for, like, forms of liturgy, but he examined what is sort of near and dear to all of our hearts, the hymnal, the sacred hymnal. He examined those of Presbyterians and Baptists and the Church of Christ and some other traditions, and what he found was that if you were gonna go through and read all of the hymns across the board, about 15% of songs that are in our hymns would be classified as laments. Compare that to the 40% that we get in the Psalms. A few years ago, there was a scholar, his name was Soong Cha Ra, scholar and pastor. He examined the CCLI reports. This is probably getting in the weeds a little bit, but, but every time a church or some sort of religious institution sort of projects lyrics of a song on a screen, you're supposed to report your use of that copyrighted material to this organization called CCLI who has all the copyright material for that stuff. And I think every time you, know, you report it, they get like a penny or I don't, I don't, whatever it is, right? And so they have all this data, and this pastor and scholar, he, he looked at the top 100 songs that were sung by churches locally, at least what they reported. And what he discovered was that of the top 100 songs, five of them would qualify as a lament. Five percent would be qualified as laments. All of that to say 
that one of the shared features of high liturgy, sort of traditional use of hymnals and contemporary praise courses is that we all universally avoid lament. We all avoid singing about pain and loss and suffering and the difficulties that come in this life. And sort of unfortunate consequence to this imbalanced way of worshiping, this imbalanced way of praying, is that in the midst of difficulty and suffering, we often don't have the capacity to pray. We don't know what it looks like to be people who have faith in the midst of tragedy and loss and pain. We don't know how to do it. It's so disorienting for us because we haven't been taught the language. Several weeks ago, I was meeting with somebody and we were talking about this series that we're, we're going through on prayer. And in the midst of our conversation, this person shared with me, like, I'm really trying to be disciplined in my prayer. And, you know, I have this moment every night where I've sort of decided I'm going to pray in the evenings. And they went on to share that they found it very, very difficult. And most nights, actually, they stopped praying because they just couldn't pull themselves to pray because life was so difficult at the current moment. It was so hard. They just couldn't muster up the energy to try and pray to God and sing his praises and try and discover what his will was for their life. Like, what is all? I just, I'm just not going to pray. And This is the alternative. But there's no time more obvious that we lack the language of lament than when talking to somebody about their pain and their suffering. We so often default to this language of meaning, right? Everything happens for a reason. I'm sure God has a great purpose for whatever is going on. God must be doing something really special here because this is just awful. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It's all, don't say that. If you're part of our church, just don't get rid of that vocabulary. It's not helpful. It actually hurts people. But what both of these responses have in common is that we have an inability to name the truth that the current situation, the current way that things are going is not supposed to be the way that it is. This is messed up. This is not supposed to be the way that it is. The world isn't supposed to be full of pain. The world isn't supposed to be full of suffering. The world isn't supposed to be full of loss and tragedy. Kids aren't supposed to be hungry. We aren't supposed to lose jobs unethically. We aren't supposed to be gossiped about and slandered. Loved ones aren't supposed to get sick and die. People aren't supposed to be displaced from their homes because of wildfires. Cancer was never part of God's plan, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And what the Psalms of Lament try and do for the people of God is teach us how to live lives of faith in the midst of life's traumatic experiences. They inform us the way we ought to process our pain and our loss and our suffering is within the context of prayer. And we as a church and we as the people of God need to recapture the capacity and ability to lament if we're ever going to have a faith that healthily endures pain and suffering and loss in our lives. If we're ever going to be a people who can maintain faith in a world that is full of pain and suffering and loss, we need to recapture the capacity to pray laments. See, if we were to explore the Psalms to help inform the way that we lament in prayer, we would generally discover that to lament and to pray and lament has these three different movements in prayer and all of them are found in Psalm 142 that we just read a few moments ago. The first movement in a prayer of lament 
is honest articulation of the situation that's at hand. It's an honest sort of articulation of what is actually going on and what it is that you are feeling and experiencing, the ways you're interacting with your current life's circumstance. See, in the midst of pain and loss, we need to express our true emotions and thoughts and feelings before God. So many of us, we just sort of fake our way through prayer. We fake our way through faith when things are going difficult, like, oh yeah, it's so hard, but you know, God's got me. And we just brush over how it is that we're really experiencing. And what happens, right, in the context of prayer, we talked about several weeks ago that prayer is communion with God. It is sort of this relational encounter that we have with God. But when we pray that way, we cannot commune with God, with our true selves. There always exists this distance between us and God when we can't present ourselves honestly before him. You see, we hear this in Psalm 142 when David writes, Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. No one is concerned for me. I have no safety, no refuge. I feel like nobody cares. I'm desperate. I'm overpowered. I don't have enough for this current situation. And there are even times in the Psalms of Lament where anger for the situation is expressed in prayers like, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Holy smokes. Or let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Man, go read Psalm 110. I was gonna read some of it and I felt uncomfortable because it's so intense. It's so intense. Psalm 110. Don't talk to me about it though after you do it. But there are times that the psalmist even calls God out. In Psalm 22, which is prayed by Jesus on the cross, the psalmist writes these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what does it say after that? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you day by day, but you do not answer. I cry out by night and I find no rest. Where are you? In his book titled, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, which I'd highly recommend, Pete Gregg recounts praying this way in the midst of a difficult time in his life. His wife was in the hospital awaiting brain surgery, and long before he knew that she was going to come out the other side okay and survive, He tells this story of his friend Dan who comes to pray with him in the midst of all that's going on. And I usually don't like to read like this long of a quote or prayer from a book, but this is, I think, worth it. As he recounts the story, he writes that his friend Dan began to pray these words, Lord, if this is your time, take Sammy home. He says, articulating my deepest dread. Would you please give Pete strength to bear the unbearable? It was, Pete goes on, a faithful and biblical thing to ask. It couldn't have been easy, an easy thing to pray, but I was having none of it. No deal, I said, interrupting without apology. No way, God, over my dead body. If you're planning to take my wife from me, if you're planning to take a mom from her two little boys, well, you're going to have to fight me for her. 
And you're going to have to find someone else to do your PR in the future too. Because I resign. I will quit. I'm not going around telling people you're good if you don't prove it to me now. God, I just don't care what your will is. Let me tell you what my will is. I want my wife to, to live. I want our boys to know their mom. And if her name is up there on some celestial planner, if she's destined to die of this thing, then what I need, what I want, is for you to sort that all out. Notice that Pete gets to the same prayer as his friend Dan at the end, right? She's destined to die. Just help me sort it all out at the end. But he doesn't pass over that raw emotion and pain that he's feeling because of the circumstance. He doesn't hold back in calling out the unfair suffering that he's actually experiencing. And this sort of honest kinds of prayer, this isn't to like demean or put down God in any way. It's not, we're not like above God where we get to like tell him what's going on and this is what you have to do. But it's a way of expressing our true selves to God in prayer. You see, without expressing our true selves in prayer, we can't ever have intimacy or cultivate intimacy with God. And so the first movement is this honest articulation of what's going on. But the second movement in sort of prayers of lament is a movement that's plea for God to act. There's this petition or request or desire or longing for God to do something. We hear this in Psalm 142 when he writes, listen to my cry. Rescue me, come do something. Rescue me from those who pursue me. Set me free from my prison. See, this movement of lamenting is a calling on God to set right what is currently wrong in the world, to bring wholeness in the midst of brokenness. And it's through honest identification that the current situation is not the way things are supposed to be that we can be led to pray rightly for what we want God to do. And this is a move that sort of goes beyond just our feelings or the sense that God can't do anything, right? That's one of my great fears that sometimes we have when we talk about prayers of lament and difficult circumstances and situations is we almost act like God couldn't do anything. Like, God, just help me bear my cross. Help me just suffer. Help me just endure and get through it. But what the Psalms teach us is that we actually need to pray for God to do something because God can act. It's an expression of our belief and conviction that God can actually change things in the world. Several years ago, um, we had a close friend whose mom had a brain aneurysm and was put in a coma for several days to try and address the situation, bring the swelling down in her brain. I remember one morning Paige, I didn't tell her I was sharing this story, but I'm going to share this story. Paige sharing with me that she had had enough with that situation. The unsettledness of it, the crying, the sadness that just pervaded our church. And she told God this. (laughs) And she told me that she remembers sharing with God, like, enough is enough, God. You need to get her out of that coma today. We're done playing this game. See, this is a a sort of trust that in the midst of difficulty, God can do something. There's a great theologian by the name of Karl Barth who wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer. And in it, he says, prayer 
is a way of communing with God and trusting that without communicating to God, God may not act otherwise. That we have to actually invite God to come and do something if God is going to do something. And we see this all throughout the ministry and life of Jesus. If you remember that story out of Luke 18, the blind man who hears Jesus and the crowds and the disciples walking by him, paying no attention to the blind man. Imagine Jesus walking by a blind man and not even giving him a glance, right? This is the context of the story. And the blind man cries out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, heal me. Do something. See me. This is how God's people have been instructed and taught to pray. The same day that Paige prayed that morning prayer, our friend's mother came out of her coma. And to be very clear, I don't think that this is sort of magic, like you pray the prayer and then like whatever you ask for happens, right? But this is our witness to an event that actually took place. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know, you explain it to me. I just know that these events sort of coincided with one another. See, prayer invites God to act and move in the world in ways perhaps that he wouldn't otherwise. But the final movement of lament is that of praise or a vow to praise. Praise and thanksgiving, in fact, naturally flow from the resolution of our lament. This is why the psalmist writes, set me free from my prison, not just set me free from my prison, amen, set me free from my prison so that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. That is God's action and work in the world become the the sort of events in which God's people celebrate and praise and give thanksgiving for God for what God has done. You see, the prayers conclude with a sort of anticipation that God's action will result in our praise. The praise offered in the Psalms of Lament will look back often, if you read the Psalms, they'll look back to the events that God has done something about, and they also look forward to the future in which God will do something new. That is to say, we know that you will do something. You are trustworthy because we have seen you be trustworthy in the past. And so there's a sense of praise. And this is how, church, we ought to have faith in the midst of pain and loss and sufferings. We name it. We beckon God to do something about it and we praise him for all that he has done and will do in the midst of it. And the the thing that allows us, at least for me, and I think the writer of Hebrews gets to this point too, that allows us to present our requests honestly before God is that we pray to one who knows what it is to suffer. We, we, We pray to one who knows what it is to feel betrayed. We pray to one who knows what it is to experience loss of a dear friend. We pray to one who understands our brokenness. This is the God to whom we pray to. See, Jesus knows our brokenness. In fact, he was made incarnate so that he can take on the brokenness of the world on himself so as to bring healing and restoration and redemption to the world. But here's the thing that we have to, here's like a sort of pivot point that I want us to understand. This way of praying isn't just for us as individuals, for our needs and the things that we are experiencing In the same way that Jesus enters into the brokenness, pain, and suffering of the world, the disciples of Jesus ought to 
move into the brokenness and pain and suffering of the world, of those that are around us. You see, this way of praying isn't just limited to our own personal lives. And in fact, it becomes all the more powerful when the people of God lament the brokenness and suffering that they see all around them. See, when we find ourselves stirred by the brokenness of the world around us in prayer, one of the things that God does often is he sends the church then into the midst of that brokenness and pain and suffering in the world. How do I say this? One of the things that I think we've gotten wrong sometimes in the church in North America as we become so like interested in what faith can do for me, how can faith make me feel less guilty about the things that I'm experiencing? How can faith help me with my brokenness and my pain and my suffering? And these things we want to care for, no doubt, just like celebration, we want to celebrate. But there's this is sort of an incomplete picture of what it is that we're supposed to be doing when it comes to faith and spirituality. Is we're supposed to look around at a broken and hurting and painful world and I think what, and enter into that as a solution, as agents, ambassadors of God to bring healing and redemption to those places. I think so often the church has forgotten our call to see the brokenness in the world and actually be stirred in empathy, to actually be stirred emotionally by what's going on. And therefore, we aren't stirred to actually do anything about it. We just come to church and we kind of do the thing and then we leave and go to our car and go to work and we do it all again the next Sunday. And I think that all starts because we haven't prayed laments for a broken and hurting world. If you want to try and discover what it is that God is calling you to do, right? I don't know what God wants me to do. Begin in prayer. What stirs your heart on an emotional level? What suffering and brokenness breaks you? Maybe God's sending you into that to do something about that. One of the things that's so difficult is that when we begin to pray this way for other people, we can't be people of inaction anymore. We cannot be people of inaction anymore. Last story real quick. I don't know if I'm going long. My wife will tell me probably that was like way, way too long. But I remember, this is just an example. I hate using myself as like a good example. So I try to avoid it, but it just kind of came to my mind. So I'm going to throw it out there to you all. I remember about a year ago, Paige and I, we, we got a sponsored child through World Vision. And... Um, we're like, yo, look at us. We're like, you know, good people giving up our finances to help this kid or whatever. And this is about, Levi was about one year old. And we get all this information about this kid and his parents and his name and his life circumstances and all these things. And it dawned on me as I'm like reading this to Paige in our living room in our apartment. I started just like weeping. I'm like, oh my gosh, those parents, what's the difference between me and them? Outside of the fact where they were born and I was born here, I could provide for my kids' needs. I don't have to worry about all these diseases and I don't have to worry about like truly not good education, like truly just horrific education. I don't have to worry about like if we'll have clothes for our kid. We have grandparents that just buy too many clothes for our, our son. There's this moment of sort of like connection with another human person's brokenness because I saw myself in them. And this is what we do in prayer. When we pray prayers of lament, not just for ourselves, but for other people, there's this connection between us and them, and it stirs us to try and do something about that brokenness that we see. 
Church, we have to recapture praying prayers of lament to teach us what it looks like to limp through life and just kind of hobble about because there's so many people who are limping through life who need somebody to walk alongside them to help carry their burdens with them. This is what God does for us in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. God, we do trust and we do believe that we can pray before you honestly and sincerely. God, we want to be a church that expresses our faith and our trust in you and our prayers. So I ask God that you would continue to sort of cultivate within us the language and capacity to lament, to grieve, to actually identify and see pain and loss and suffering, not just something to endure, but something to present before the throne of heaven. And God, there's so many needs in this room. There's a wide spectrum of things that we need from you. And so we ask God, do something. Act. Be at work in the world to bring about the world that you long for and created, not the one that currently exists. And we thank you, God, that we can trust you in our prayers. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.